First question I'd like to ask is, at what point in your life did you start doing this work with yourself? I think I was a head teacher's daughter, and I always felt different because I went to my father's school, and so you can't help but feel different if your father is also your head teacher. And I felt very different. I felt very geeky and unattractive. But then I noticed that way after I'd left that school, I still felt the same. And that was an insight for me that we carry with us things that are no longer relevant. You know, you might say, I wasn't good at school, or I was a geeky kid, or I was ugly, or I had big glasses. And then we forget that that isn't us anymore. And it's the carrying the remnants of who we were that causes us so much harm. So I had to take a look at why I was still feeling I'm so different. I can't connect. I'm not like other people. And I realized that it, I was self-perpetuating it, and I stopped it. At what age did you realize that? In my 20s, maybe 27. So I carried it with me for a long time. Mm. But my late 20s, I began to see what I was doing. You was know, there anything in particular that like opened that door for you, or how did you begin to see it? What happened? You know, I'd notice I'd go to like a party and I'd think, oh, I'm not like everyone here, and I'd want to leave. I'd go to places and I'd only ever connect with people I already knew. And I realized that I was telling myself a story. I'm different. I'm not like everyone else. And of course, that's the bane of your life to be different because our greatest need throughout life is to find connection and avoid rejection. And I was finding disconnection and finding rejection because I was doing that to myself. You know, I, t I talk about my book, The Greatest Pain Are the Lies We Tell Ourselves. We can deal with someone else's lie, I don't like you, you're boring, you're not smart. But it's the lies we tell ourselves that cause us so much pain because they sink in like lotion on dry skin and our mind believes they must be true. So I had to tell myself a better lie and that was life-changing for me. And how did you start that process? I think it's like everything. Identify the habit, understand the habit, change the habit. Identify the pattern, understand the pattern, smash the pattern. So I identify, I keep telling myself a story. I'm not like other people. And if I tell myself that, I'm keeping it going. So I've understood what I'm doing. And now the next step is to change that immediately and permanently. It didn't take very long at all. Mm. And if someone was starting out on this right now, like they're listening to you hear mm -hmm. that or say that, and they recognize all this stuff in their own life, right? Mm -hmm. So there's definitely things that I tell myself that are lies, right? Mm -hmm. And I suppose everything we tell ourselves yeah, sort of, of could be interpreted as a lie. Or a story. Or yeah. story, right? So of course you've got your book, Tell Yourself a Better Lie. That's a great starting mm. place, right? Does that give us like practical things to do, like tools? Or is that more of the psychology of it? I think you have to understand a few rules of the mind in order to understand how to master your mind. One of them is that your mind neither knows or cares whether what you tell it is true or false, good or bad, useful or useless, so you might as well tell it better things. Another one is that everything you do indeed tell your mind isn't a fleeting thought, it's a blueprint that your mind and body and psyche work to make real. And just two more. Uh, the strongest force in all of us is we act in a way that matches up with how we are choosing to define ourselves. And the fourth one is easy. The mind learns by repetition. So if you decide to move from I'm not enough to I am enough, 
You have to repeat that a lot. You have to say it, state it, affirm it, embody it. Because at first you go, I'm enough, and you might go, well, you're not really enough. Come on, you live in a tiny apartment, you haven't got a car, you don't wear nice clothes, or you've got cellulite, or you're in a dead-end job. And then you realize, oh, I'm arguing with this. No one else is saying this. This is me. And then you go, okay, that's true. I don't have a nice car, but I'm still enough. I do have cellulite. Hey, I'm still enough. So add in the objections and keep going. And very quickly, your mind will go, here you go again. You say that every day. It must be true. And then you run out of the objections because you're not enough because you're not flawed. You are flawed and you're enough. And all we can ever be in life is flawed people, having flawed relationships with flawed people. I call it being flawsome. And then you think, you know, I'm enough. I'm enough just, I don't have to be or do or buy or own or get to be enough. I'm enough now. And its strength is in its simplicity and its honesty because you are enough. What defines you is not the number on the scales or the number on your bank account or the number of followers you have. And yet we think that does define us. But when you can get back to, hey, I am enough just the way I am, then life changes powerfully because you start to look for what's good about you, not what's wrong about you. So when you were 27 and you found these internal beliefs, you started to recognize them. How long was it after that before you started helping other people with this? Uh, about the, It was probably about the same time. When I was 27, I was an aerobic instructor for Jane Fonda. And I've always had a, a mind that's fascinated by human behavior. And what absolutely fascinating was seeing women come in who were movie stars and soap stars and, and actresses, and they all were obsessed with how they looked and what they weighed, and they were all very unhappy. And I was intrigued by this slew of people with anorexia, bulimia, exercise, compulsive, body dysmorphia, orthorexia, men and women, but more women, and I realized something amazing that their whole worth was based on what they looked like and how much they weighed. And the scales could make or ruin their day. And they were trying to fix a mental illness with aerobics. I don't feel good enough, so I'm going to work out harder, longer. But of course, a lot of them looked utterly breathtaking, but that isn't enough because they didn't feel it. And I realized something amazing, which is we're all trying to change a behavior but our thoughts cause our behavior. So shouldn't we change the thought that causes the behavior rather than change the behavior? And so I began to study that, how thoughts come first. Your thoughts dictate your feelings. Your feelings dictate your behaviors. And you justify it because you go back to the thought. It's like a loop. And I realized if we could just change the thought... It would be a game changer. And also that's so easy. It doesn't require to do the plank or pull-ups or learn a new language. It just requires you to have a better dialogue with yourself. Tell yourself a better lie. Go from I'm not enough because to I am enough. I'm enough because I'm enough. Yeah. What was the most, I have two questions along this train of thought, but what was the most like impactful belief that you shifted personally in that time that time period? Like something, and maybe give me an example of like, how was this belief impacting you before? And then what did you change? And how did that impact 
those things in your life? So mine would have absolutely been, I'm not enough. I was a head teacher's daughter. So my father expected, you know, my father being a principal or a head teacher was very used to having children who did whatever he said and, and looked up to him. And because he was used to that, he just didn't have the patience at home to deal with us because we weren't like his pupils. And I didn't feel enough. I certainly didn't feel smart enough. My brother went to private school. I didn't. I went to my father's state school. My sister was the baby, and she was very pretty and endearing. So my brother was smart. My sister was pretty. And I always felt like this freak in the middle. I was very tall. I had super skinny legs, knobbly knees. And I just felt I didn't have anything going for me. I, I wasn't smart. I wasn't pretty. I wasn't cute. I wasn't engaging. And I remember my father was my history teacher. And he wrote in my history book when I was 11, this is amazing work. I had no idea you were intelligent and bright. And I think he wrote that to please me. And it didn't please me because I knew even then my father doesn't even know who I am. He doesn't even know that I'm smart. And so I bought very much into the not enoughness. I left school, I went to college, I didn't apply myself, I was asked to leave. But then I realized that all I had to do was tell myself a better lie and start saying, I'm enough, I matter, I've got something to offer the world. And of course, initially I was going to be a teacher and I wanted to work with troubled children, but I realized I could reach reach a much bigger audience if I became a therapist and deal with troubled children. And now I've got my RTT program in so many schools. So I don't quite know when I realized I had this message. I think it was when I was, was working for Jane Fonda and I had two roommates. One was bulimic, one was anorexic, one would defrost frozen grapes and eat a few and the other would defrost a whole cheesecake and eat the whole lot while crying hysterically. And everyone in life is your teacher, and they taught me something amazing. One was bulimic, one was anorexic. None of them ever believed they're enough. So I founded the I'm Enough movement, and I began to teach it to everyone and anyone, children. who would write to me and say, you know, this is the missing bit. This is it. I've been in therapy for 30 years. Somebody of 80 wrote to me and said, I wish I'd found you years ago, but thank goodness. And she has it tattooed right up her arm, an 80-year-old lady, and she sent me the picture and said, this has changed my life. And so people would write to me or send me emails saying, you know, this has changed my life, saved my life, just done, made such a difference to my life. So I knew I was onto something. And so I continued with the I'm Enough movement. But of course, I think most therapists have an aha moment when we realize that we have to look at our life and what's missing and now I would never change anything about my life because I had to be a child that wasn't understood and felt deeply insignificant to understand what it's like to not be understood and to feel deeply deeply insignificant mm. what's been the biggest personal challenge that you faced that you used all of this for I think when I first started to work on television, a lot of challenges. I was a woman. I was on a television program, a series, and there was a male doctor and a male trainer and me in the middle. And the doctor particularly, although I'm sure he didn't mean it, was somewhat condescending. Who are you to turn up, you know? And he was very much into, you know, no fat, carbs are good. And I knew that was a terrible, terrible diet. But at first, it was hard for me to have a voice against people that were doctors that would say, you know, low fat is all. And I said, that's just the worst thing to put people on. And so I think my challenge was having a voice, 
having my own power to say, I know you think this is true, but it's not true. I know you think this is right, but it's not right. So he would say lots and lots of fruit, but you know, you and I know that fruit is full of fructose and while fruit is lovely and healthy, you only need no more than three pieces a day maximum. So I think it was finding my voice, finding the confidence to say, just because this is here, it doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's written, it doesn't mean it's correct. And we have to challenge all these beliefs. And it took me a while. And I think on my first TV series, I regretted not saying this is wrong because I, I was aware that I shouldn't make waves. And now I'm, I'm much better at making waves and saying that's silly, that's wrong, just because it's written. There's so many things that we don't believe anymore, like um, taking your appendix out when you're a kid, you know, circumcising babies. We're beginning to realize a lot of things we do, there's no need to do them just because they used to be done. Mm. I'm under the impression, or I would assume that at different points in your life, people have told you that you're either too confident or too forward or not humble. What what do you do with that when that happens? Like I'm assuming that's one of the tactics that maybe these doctors mm. would use. To I think when I was little, I heard the opposite. You're not enough. You'll never amount to anything. You're just going to be a mediocre person and you should just be a school teacher. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But I didn't hear that. I heard the opposite. You're not good enough. You'll never make it. You're never going to amount to anything and keep small. And I, I haven't actually had many people tell me I'm too confident. I remember some years ago, I was giving a talk for a company. Someone in the audience said, what is the best book to read on confidence? And I said, mine, my book, Ultimate Confidence. And he looked at me and I could see him thinking, that's really weird you're promoting your book so I kind of smiled and said why would I promote someone else's book I wrote that book I wrote it for someone like you and it is the best book you can buy in confidence and later he did say you know I was really taken aback when you did that but then of course I realized of course you would promote your own book if you said to Gordon Ramsay what's the best you wouldn't go oh it's definitely Jamie Oliver's you'd say well mine of course mm. if you said to Bruce Springsteen what's the best rock song rock, I'm sure he'd pick one of his own so that was interesting that I did meet people who didn't actually say anything, would give you a funny look as if to go, wow, you believe in yourself and your products. But of course, my whole message is if you can't believe in yourself, how can you expect anyone else to believe in you? If you can't believe you're lovable, how can you expect someone else to? And if you can't believe you've got an amazing product, how on earth can you sell it? So I think... Maybe I, I, I don't, I've never thought of myself as arrogant, but I understand that arrogance anyway is just the other end of being insecure. I'm trying to convince you that I'm amazing, but I don't think that. I know that I'm flawed and you're flawed and here we are having a flawed relationship. So I think people only get put off by confidence when it's a front. Hmm. You know, I, I think I can be very honest about many, many failings in my life. When I talk to parents, I always say, listen, I got so much wrong. If I could have one wish, it would always be to go back and do it again, knowing what I know now, because I didn't know then. I was a single parent, all the things I could have done and should have done to be better. You can only learn as you go along. What would you do differently? 
You know, I didn't realize something so simple and so profound that all your children ever want is for you to be present with them. I was a single parent. I didn't have any child support. And I, I, I had a great career as a therapist, and I could make enough money to pay school fees. But that was it, because school fees are very high. And I was paying a mortgage. And then I realized if I wrote books, I could make a second income, and my daughter could also go on holiday. I didn't want to be the only kid at school saying, well, I don't go on holiday. And so I began writing, and then I realized that I really wasn't present. My, my daughter, I'd say to my daughter, I'm writing this so we can go on holiday. Because, but mommy, I just want you to be with me now. And she didn't care about that. And so the thing I would do would be be present. So cook, you know, do all the things that is so important to a kid. Cook, do stuff in the kitchen, just simple things like be with them. And I see now even more that parents are on their phone and kids are on their phone and everyone's in their screen. So I would have been much more present and done the things that gave her pleasure that she needed. Mm. Anything else that you would do differently? I mean, I loved having a child. I loved um, being a parent. I don't know. I think I think that's enough. Being much more interested in cooking. I was never interested in cooking. I always had au pairs, and they loved to cook. And I thought, well, this is great. I found someone who loves cooking. But I realized later that I should have done that with my daughter. It just didn't interest me. Mm-hmm because my mother wasn't interested in very much maternal stuff, and we tend to pass that on. So what I would have done differently is sat down and really looked at my daughter's needs and looked at my needs and put her needs first. You know, I did the classic thing. She's going to private school. I'm working so hard to pay the bill. She's got a lovely home. She's got nice stuff, and I can even pay for an au pair to cook with her and for her and but actually I should have tuned into her need to have me more present doing that. Mm, Beautiful. And the other thing, which is a silly thing, but now, you know, it's another silly regret is that we had an au pair and she'd put all her stuff away. So my daughter never learned actually to be tidy. And that's the silly thing. I still think, wow, I really should have said to that au pair, don't clean her room, let her do it. Because, you know, we've got to teach our children by example. A lot of what I talk about and a lot of what I'm interested in is helping people kind of embrace or discover like what I call the wonders of their soul, right? Like it seems like at 27 or so when you were working with Jane Fonda and you started discovering all this, it became very clear to you. Like you said, you were always interested in human behavior and psychology. It became really clear what you felt like you wanted to do for the world. And you even said that you, instead of I forget what you were thinking about, but you decided to become a therapist so that you could impact the world at at a bigger Mm, scale. Yeah. Right? So I have two questions kind of with that. The first one is, what is your recommendation for people to sort of discover that for themselves? If there was some path they could go down, if if they feel like they're still trying to discover purpose and like what really drives them, like what questions could they ask? Because a lot of people do say that, you know, what is my purpose? You know, I'm, I'm very lucky because being a therapist is an extraordinary job because we all have nine needs in a career and the needs are for certainty, diversity, connection, significance, meaning, purpose, growth, contribution, and making a difference. And it's almost impossible to find a career that would do all of that. 
And yet as a therapist, you you are connected. I connect to my clients. I, I really care about a lot of them, and I form great friendships with some. So some of my best friends came about as my clients, even though we're told you should never do that, but I've always been a great rule breaker. So I have connection, I have significance, I have certainty every day that I can maybe help someone change their life. Huge diversity because every client is different with a different story and they're all fascinating and compelling. Purpose, because I'm doing something that matters. If I can change children at, at a level at school where they're not being bullied and where they're going to be better parents, then that's actually doing my bit to change the world. Meaning, because it's so meaningful. Growth, I grow, my clients grow, I contribute, I make a difference. So I think I realized I'd found this amazing career that met all my needs. And I think if you're looking for something and you think, but I, I don't even know what it is, ask yourself a question. What did you love doing between the age of seven and 14? Could be five and 16, but what you love doing at that early age is a key to your unique skill set. So Joe Malone, for instance, was always taking petals and making fragrance and became an amazing perfumer. Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay would tell you they were in the kitchen at five inventing dishes. And one of my friends was saying that her son just loved to cook at five and she's nurtured that. And he's a real up and coming chef. So look at what you loved, what sparked joy, what gave you pleasure for me. I noticed I was always writing stories. My mother kept them all, but they were always about dysfunctional families and mothers who weren't present. And it was amazing that my mother kept them but didn't realize I was writing in some way about our life. And my daughter was always making clothes out of Kleenex for her toys, and now she's an amazing designer and an artist. So look at what gave you joy. And if you don't ask, what, what did I love? Were you always doing experiments? Someone said to me, I was always doing puzzles and now here I am a strategist because it's a key. It's very hard to be good at doing something that you don't love. Find what you love to do and then be amazing at it. Be phenomenal at it. And if you can find what you love and be amazing, the top 20% in every classification are always employed. I mean, you do what you love. And so many of us at school are taught, you know, this is how you can make money. This is a good career for you. This won't expect much of you. This has got security in it. And it's the wrong question. The question to be, what do you love? Can you market something that you love? Can you monetize a gift? Because if you can, again, you'll be amazing. And my daughter, my daughter was once, she got scouted in the street by a modeling agency and they asked her to walk at London Fashion Show. It's just a huge thing. And she said, Mommy, I hated every minute. I had to drink just to go. She said, I'll never do it again. And she also said, I could never work in a normal job. I can only be an artist. It's in my soul. But she's actually, and I said, that's great. You know, if you want to be an artist, that's great. But you have to understand something about being an artist. You have to learn to do a rejection. You've got to go to galleries. You've got to show them your work. Like, I don't like it. You, you have to understand that whatever you want to do as a career, look at being an artist, but look again. What does that involve? It involves talking to people, putting on exhibitions, nobody might come. So a lot of us just have a quick look, oh, I'm gonna be an artist, that's good. But you have to really look at what you want because anything you want 
requires you learning something new. Like I write books, I love writing books. But in order to write a book, you also think, but how am I going to sell that book? That involves going on blogs and writing articles and learning to be a speaker too. So I was teaching her, if you really want to be a successful artist, you have to get over the rejection that many artists feel they won't show their work, they won't get an agent, and it's hard. But if you want it so much, you've got to walk into galleries and show them your work. You must do it. You must do what you hate to get what you want. And she did learn to do that. It wasn't easy for her. And now she's doing really, really well. She's had a few exhibitions. She sold a lot of her work. And then she did something amazing, which wasn't good. She's changed her whole work and made it very dark. And nobody bought it. And I said, you know, when you're writing a book or painting a picture, you, you have to also think, what does your customer want? It's very arrogant. Like, I'm going to write what I want to write and paint what I want to paint. If you don't care about a market, it's fine. So while you're busy inventing stuff and opening a restaurant or you got to think, you know, this isn't just about you. If you want to monetize something, then you have to work out what do your clients want because they might not want what you want. And then she eventually went back to what sold. She had to commercialize her art because life isn't that simple. I've got to something I can monetize. And that's a good thing. What do you love? Can you monetize it? Will your clients like it? Will they want you to change it? When I took my first book to a publisher, they said, we love this book, dump the second half and change it all around. And I didn't go, oh no. I said, okay, sure. I'll, I'll do what you want because they knew what would sell and what they knew would sell wasn't quite what I thought would sell. And so I think a lot of people don't understand that I, I want to do something or be something. And the first part is really decide that you deserve that and you're worth it. But then really take a look at what that involves. And then the next part is you're going to have to do the work because I think we're so into manifesting. We've forgotten. Oh, I got to work. Yeah. It isn't quite enough to manifest. You've got to go out and work, even if you want to manifest love. You still got to get off the couch and go and put yourself in front of the kind of person you might want to share your life with. Otherwise, you'll just end up with a delivery person because who are you going to meet if you don't go out there? Mm. Let's talk about that a little bit. I, I have a question to go back to at some point, but you just opened up that can. When it comes to attracting love and getting into love, what are the core beliefs that you notice as a pattern with people that you end up working with them on? Very much. I'm not worth it. You know, again, a head teacher's daughter, my father was so invested in other people's children that it was almost inevitable. I grew up believing that I wasn't worthy of love, that I would always be secondary, that I would pick someone and I would never be their priority because I never was anyone's priority except for my grandmother. It was amazing, but she lived hundreds of miles away from me. And so I saw my own pattern of, I, I attract people who are not really present for me. They're nice, and, but they've, they've always got something else going on. And one day I was on holiday with my then partner and he was telling me what I couldn't, couldn't eat, which was really weird. And I said, oh, you're like a head teacher. 
And suddenly the penny dropped. I thought, oh, my God, this is my dad. I could never sleep with him again from that moment. It was a shame we were on holiday because it was really confusing for him. But I suddenly realized what I'd done. I'd recreated what I knew and tried to change the ending. Here's someone. He's attractive. He's um, established. He's got a lot going on. And he's really busy with his work and other stuff. And we were dating but I was never a priority. And I was trying to make myself a priority because I'd actually found someone just like my dad and I was trying to make him be what I wanted him to be, which is totally committed to me. And when the penny dropped, I thought, oh, this is a silly thing. I'm trying to change the ending when actually I need to change the beginning. I need to not ever date anyone again that reminds me of my father in any way, shape or form because I liked very intellectual people, um, like my dad. And I realized that I had to do something different. And it didn't happen overnight, because I still had that attraction. But I did some work at saying no. I understood something about the mind, which is forever fascinating. And that is that the mind loves what is familiar, and really doesn't like what is unfamiliar, and furthermore wants to run to what's familiar, while running away from what is unfamiliar. So I'd seen that with my clients for years, and I had to think, okay, let's apply that to me. I like unavailable men, because that's familiar. And I'd say, oh, they're boring, they're so keen, or they're too much for me. But what I was actually saying is their niceness and availability is unfamiliar to me, so I'm going to run back to what I know. And then I just thought, so I just got to change it. And it starts by saying, I am making this behavior unfamiliar, I'm going to make the unfamiliar, never add if it kills me, if it's the last thing I'll do, I'm going to make this unfamiliar. And a couple of weeks later, I was on a television show. And I was in the green room, which is like the the, 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 the hospitality room, and this very compelling man came up, and he was really interesting. And I thought, no, that's my dad. And I just got my coat and went home. And I was so pleased that I recognized the pattern understood the pattern, stopped the pattern. I thought, I'm not going to date someone like him ever again. And then it didn't take long for that to change. Then I met my husband, who was not my type at all. Is this John? Yeah. Oh, okay. But I was married to him in 10 months, and he's Mm. exactly what I needed. He makes me his absolute priority, always puts me first. Can you tell me the story of like the first few interactions and what was happening in your head and heart with all of that because of course he was unfamiliar yeah from your past yeah so what was that like like how did he come up to you and how did this begin just before i met john i'd just begun to date someone who had two very young children a very troubled divorce they lived like 200 miles away and his business was struggling and i already knew this is not going to ever work because but i'd actually gone to zimbabwe i i was funding an orphanage there and i was in zimbabwe with my friend and her husband and all they kept saying to me, why aren't you married? They, they couldn't understand it. And I was staying in the honeymoon suite, which was amazing. It's actually the second honeymoon suite I'd been in in two months. I was giving a talk where they also put me in a honeymoon suite. And I didn't think, oh, I thought, well, this is wonderful. He had two baths, two showers, two everything, very romantic. And every night, one of the staff would walk me to my honeymoon suite because there were lions and monkeys and... And they would say, where's your husband? You, you, you haven't got a husband. And I said, no, I'm cool. I'm completely fine. 
And I remember thinking, you know, if I never meet anyone ever, I'm all right. I'm actually really happy. I was already thinking I wasn't going to carry on seeing this guy when I came back from Africa. And I met a witch doctor and she said, I'm, I'm going to make you irresistible to men. It was all quite funny. She threw some bones at me and did some stuff. And I came home and my two friends I was in Africa with said, oh, let's go out. And I really didn't want to go. I was very tired. And I said, okay, we'll go. And we went to this place called Chelsea Arts Club and John was there. And I already knew John because our children went to the same school and he came up and he joined us and, um, and we met again. And we went on some dates and I realized very quickly that he had all the qualities that would make me really happy. I mean, I think he realized even quicker because I think he won he would have proposed me in a week if he could. <laughs> and then we went away to Marrakesh and then we got married 10 months later. But I, I could see in him the qualities I needed, actually more than I wanted that I needed, that he was very, very funny, which is so because if we have an argument, he'll just come in. And he'll make up a character and he makes me laugh and I can never stay angry with him. He's funny, he's kind, he's very interesting. I think kindness is so underrated as a quality. So for me, funny, kind, intelligent. And he was always there and he made me feel immediately that I was the most important person in his world. And I'd already, and so I just didn't really have to make that for me because I already was thinking this is what I need. And um, yeah, it's been amazing ever since. Wow, incredible. Yeah. So then I'll, I'll take us back to that other question, which is, so you decided that you were going to do therapy so mm -hmm. that you could impact people at scale. But that was all the way back when you were 27, yeah. 28, right? I was 24 when I started to train to be a therapist. Yeah. Wow. So very young. Yeah. And then you walked me through where when Phaedra was going to school, you were paying the mortgage and paying for school, but you know, it was a lot, mm. even though you were a really great therapist yeah. at the time. So then throughout this whole journey, before you became who you are now, what was the internal monologue like? Or did you, like, how did you, what was life like building up to the point where you became the person that impacts at scale? Cause it, that happened maybe 10, 15 years ago. When did you start becoming like, so I, I started off as a therapist and I loved being a therapist. I was very lucky that I was passionately in love with what I did. And a lot of people I train say, how do you get so good as that? You've got to have a heart for it. You've got to love it. Be in love with it. Be in love with the fact that when someone turns up in your office and says, my boyfriend hits me or my husband abuses me or my, I'm bullied, that you have the power to help them change their life in that hour. And it's, it's a very wonderful feeling that when someone comes to me, and no matter how bad it is, and sometimes it is absolutely horrific with a capital H, you know that from that minute you can help them change. So I was doing that and I loved it. People would write to me and say, you changed my life when you said that. My life changed when you did that. But it was interesting. They'd often come up with different things. So they one person would say, oh my God, when you took me through that process, that was a game changer. Another one would say, oh my goodness, when you said something to me, I felt you understood me immediately. So I already knew that I could really impact people with certain techniques. I was collating. Somebody would say to me, hey, could you see this person? And in would come someone immensely famous. And then they would send their friends to me. So I was getting really high quality clients, rock stars, movie stars, some English royalty, and of course, because of that, I was then asked if I'd appear on a television show um, 
Celebrity Fit Club and I'm a celebrity get me out of here and Celebrity Big Brother. So I then got a second job, which was either, either in front of the camera on some amazing shows or I'd be behind the camera and I'd be the person saying, you know, this person isn't strong enough to go and I'm a celebrity. This one seems weak, but they're actually very strong. So I had this great job behind the scenes working as a therapist on lots of shows and in front of the camera as a judge on lots of shows too. So I'm laughing because I'm thinking of a very funny story. I was actually going to get the train in King's Cross years ago and I, I got a taxi and he was a really strange person. When I got there, he said the fee was £100, it's usually 20 and I said to him, um, this is ridiculous, it's, not, it's only £20. He said, I'm not giving you your case. So I got out of my car and I went to find a policeman who didn't want to help me. And this guy and I said, oh, it's the judge. You're that judge. He said, I've been watching you. And the policeman thought I was a judge. And he immediately said, come with me. And he walked through the, he said, give that woman her suitcase immediately. She's a judge. And so they got my suitcase and I got on the train. It was the funniest thing because I was a judge on a reality television show. And that this guy said, I've been in jail watching you. You're the judge. And this policeman obviously assumed I was some kind of judge in court. And really changed his mind from I'm not interested to, oh, you're a judge. It was very funny. So I had this great job where I was seeing my clients in my office and loving it. I mean, as a single parent, that was such a gift to me because I could see clients around school hours. There's almost no jobs for women that give you that flexibility. I can put all my clients into the after-school drop-off before pick-up. If my daughter's sick, I can cancel everything with two hours' notice. I remember when I was in hospital giving birth, I was just calling all my clients and canceling them that day and rescheduling them because I was my own boss, so I had flexibility, tremendous freedom. I could pick my hours. I could even pick my fees, so I loved my job. But then I began to work on television too, which I loved, and the radio, and then... I got offered a job on a show that was filming in both America and England, so I was commuting every two weeks. But I loved that too. And then I thought, gosh, I've got this audience. I should write a book. So I began to write books. And so my life had took an amazing direction. I'm seeing clients who I love. I'm working on television, love it, working on radio, love it. I've written one book that's a bestseller, then another one. And then, of course, I came full circle to people would ring me up and say, hey, I live in Tallahassee. I just want to see someone like you. I live in New Zealand. I live, where's someone like you? I said, well, there isn't someone like me because I've created my own method. And it was the clients that said that thing you did, that thing you said that I was collating all the time. What gave clients a stunning turnaround? Because it's not about you as a therapist. It's about the client. When I created my method, it was what do clients need? Because they need to get out of pain as fast as they possibly can. If you turn up at the dentist with a tooth pulled out, they don't put you in therapy, they take out the tooth. If you turn up in A&E with a broken leg, they don't say, we're going to have to build a relationship here. They, they remove the pain. So while I was getting all these calls and letters saying, I need to see someone like you. I thought, gosh, I really should train people then. And in the meantime, I always remember Wayne Dyer saying, do not die with your music still playing inside you. And in the middle of all of that. So I began to create my own method. It was very exciting. I said to my husband, I'm going to put on one school. 
and we'll just see what happens. And we put on one, and people came from all over the world. They came from Australia, from New Zealand, from Guam, from South Africa. And I taught that one school, and it was amazing. And I taught six, I think, the next year and the next year. And then we took that same school to Canada, to Australia. We took it to Melbourne and Sydney. We took it to New York and Miami and California and Vancouver. And we've taken it to Amsterdam and Berlin. And it's been amazing. So it's funny that I started off wanting to be a teacher. And you think you're going there. And then I went all over here and became a teacher, but mm. became a teacher teaching my technique, which I'm immensely proud of. And one of the joys of my life when I was a therapist was I usually wake up and I come downstairs to letters and cards saying, you changed my life. This is a baby I was told I could never have. I've lost 80 pounds. I got a promotion. And now, of course, I, I don't so much come downstairs to letters, but I open my laptop to letters from the people I've trained showing me the letters they've got. Mm. So somebody recently said, look, this person sent me a bunch of flowers bigger than my head. This person insisted on payment. One of our students, somebody just bought her a car, which is amazing because this man said that he worked with her. He sent his entire company to her and he bought her a car, which is extraordinary. So it's a really lovely thing to think there's something I kind of had as a little seed became a whole thing and it has won a lot of awards we just got the UK radio award last month for the best mental health product and actually we don't really have a mental health product but I guess we do in that we help people with their mental health but my biggest joy above all of that the books the awards is actually having our TT in schools and as you know I've been working in Tallinn with the children. When I came off stage, they were all hugging my legs. And it was just the loveliest thing to work with children at that level on their self-esteem and giving them freedom and empowerment is probably the best. Incredible. Is there one story in particular that stands out like the most impactful, most memorable story? Oh, let me think. With a client. Mm -hmm. Gosh, there's so many. I, I think I've got two favorites, actually. I'm going to have to tell you two. So one of my clients said, you know, my mom, she's 82. She has a hell of a life. My dad hits her, and she's so invested in this marriage, and she can't actually see. And I'd love you to work with her because I'm really worried. I mean, she's 82. She's frail. He could knock her down the stairs. So in came this sweet lady and we sat down and she began to say, I'm going to pretend her husband is called Kevin. Kevin is a good husband. And I said, I want you to say Kevin is a good provider because obviously I know that Kevin smashed your head into the kitchen tiles because you burnt the chicken. And I want you to say is a good provider. I want you to replace the word husband with provider just for the hour that we're talking. And I want you to imagine that you've gone to a restaurant and the chef burnt the chicken and Kevin went into the kitchen and smashed his head into the kitchen tiles and the police turned up and the chef and Kevin said, well, he burnt my chicken. The police wouldn't go, oh, of course. Yeah, you shouldn't have burnt his chicken. They would take him away because you can't put your hands on people. And so I began to have her see that he was a good provider. And I didn't say he's a terrible husband. I just said he's a good provider. And she said, yes, we've got three sons and a lovely house. And she was Jewish. And it was very important that she had this 
facade, I guess, of a nice home. But he wouldn't let the grandchildren come to visit her because they made a mess. And I was saying, oh, that's a shame, because I would have thought a good husband would see how those grandchildren give you. She's not allowed to come in the house. They make a mess. He doesn't like them. I said, that's because he's a good provider, maybe not a good husband. Anyway, we did this whole session about how at a very early age she'd bought into this. She had to be married to a nice man that provided, and they had these three sons. And her son wrote to me and said, she left him, you know. She left him within two months. She's never been happier because you told her he's a good one. She thought, well, I've got, I can provide for myself. I don't need to put up with that. He was miserable. She was very happy till the day she died. Those grandchildren came over every weekend. And often with a client, it's making them just change one word. This isn't a good husband, but it is a good provider. But you don't need a good provider. You've got a pension, you've got a home. It's making them understand, oh, this isn't love. I'm deluding myself that this is love. So that was such a joy for me to see someone of 82 spend the last bits of her life happy and joyful and not living in, because that was a lie. He was never a good husband. I don't think he was ever a good husband in their entire marriage, but the lie she told herself allowed her to stay there. And my second one was while I was working, again, a very similar case. Somebody wrote to me and said, my kid's being expelled from school because he's hitting other kids. I'm desperate. Could you? I said, sure. So she brought him in, and he was a 14-year-old kid. The same thing. The father would hit him, actually with a belt. They were separated parents. And um, he just had no power. I mean, what can you say when you're 14 and your dad is actually physically assaulting you with a belt? And the mother, who was a good mother, said, but, you know, he needs a dad. I said, well, all children need a dad, but he doesn't need that. So with him, I was rehearsing, look, I know when your dad hits you, it, it's, very, it's impossible, but you have to tell him today when you leave here that you will not see him anymore until he stops this violence. And, of course, he did that, and the father was so childish, he smashed up his Xbox and his possessions and dumped them in the garden. But I said to him, look, you, you, we've got to help your dad here. You know, your dad needs a lot of help, and you must be able to say to him, you, you cannot put your hands on me. And when I see you, I know you might hit me, and I have to take that. But when I leave, I will call the police because you may not put your hands on me. And the father eventually, because the kid wouldn't see him, got therapy, and they began a relationship again. And that was a great thing because all I could do with that kid was give him empowerment it's not okay to put your hands on. And, of course, I could see what was happening. He was now hitting kids at school. He attacked a kid in class because passing on that violence. So for me, being able to stop him being hit and to stop his dad hitting him, you know, you have to see how that's going to go on because he won't hit his children. And you, you, it's very important to give kids a voice. They often don't have a voice when they're bullied, when they're hurt. And you could see that kid didn't feel enough. But it was a lovely thing that he was able to see, i got to help my dad. He needs help. And he, I said, you know, you're smarter than your dad. You're more mature than your dad. You're, you're 14, but you're actually more grown up than your dad. And he really liked that. And he held on to that. And he did something amazing. I know you're always testing new things and you're yeah. always getting all this feedback from your own clients and from all the practitioners that you train. And I mean, at this point, I think it's like hundreds of thousands of people per yeah. year, right? Is there one technique right now that you're seeing or one tool that you're seeing that's like the most effective thing across the board or that you just see a lot of promise in? 
I think um, one of the things I help children with a lot is this cheerleader. So a lot of people, and I started the cheerleader for adults who'd come in and go, oh, well, I couldn't do that. That's not going to work. I could do that, but... When I have this voice in my head going, well, that's not going to, who's going to want you with three kids? You didn't go to college. And so I realized that the critical voice could be replaced by a cheerleader. And of course, I work with a lot of football teams. I've worked with many football teams, hypnotized them to be much better and to work on that, you know, like the hunting dogs where the mind is all working together. So I began to do this thing for my adult clients, which is install a cheerleader, of course, whoops and cheers and does backflips and claps and says, you've got this. Your name is all over this. No one can do this better than you. And, of course, even on a bad day, cheerleader never goes, oh, my God, you suck. They go, no, you did really well. You tried really hard. You'll do better. You learned something. And so I just began working with children installing the cheerleader. And I was watching a video. We were, we, it was put up for an award as one of the most amazing things in education, one of the newest things. And I was watching the video of these children, and they were saying things like, oh, my cheerleader helps with my mental health. My cheerleader believes my cheerleader tells me I've done great. And I loved that because – so I think that would be the one thing I would pick today, that we all have the power to shut down the critic – and turn up the cheerleader. And with the children, they imagine the pom-poms. But the cheer- In fact, a little boy last week said, um, my cheerleader is, a sh- is like a shark, and it eats negative thoughts. And I love that. So they would, And they didn't all draw people with pom-poms. They drew a banana with arms and legs. They drew it, but the, the, the shark that ate, it was like a trash can, but it was a shark, and you put your negative thoughts in there, and it ate them. And so my one advice today would be shut down your internal critic and turn up your cheerleader. Don't let in destructive criticism because you do have a choice and not letting in destructive criticism is actually life-changing. You're always going to have people who go, I don't like you, I hate your book. I mean, I write books and I'm very lucky I get amazing comments, but there's always a few ones that go, your book's awful, I hate it. I hate you. I hate your voice. I hate what you look like. I could go, oh my God. I go, well, that's an opinion. It's an opinion in a sea of opinions. Most of the opinions are good, but I don't have to let that in. You know, when you, if you write or paint or design, you put yourself out there or even create a product, somebody won't like it, but you have a choice. Are you going to let that affect you or not? Are you going to turn up the cheerleader who's going to say, look, not everyone has to love your product. But do you love it? Do you believe in it? So I would say the thing that can absolutely change your life on a dime is don't let in destructive criticism. Constructive is different. If someone says to me, hey, Marissa, you're always late. It's really annoying. Or you talk too fast. I think, yeah, you know, you're right. I must learn to slow down. That's good. Do not let in destructive criticism, but do let in praise, especially your own praise. And it really goes back to the familiar. If you are born into a family where people are critical, criticism becomes so familiar that when someone says something nice like, I love your hat, you go, I found it in the street. It only costs a dollar. It's, it's not worth anything. And what you're doing is something I find immensely sad. You're making criticism familiar 
and actually rejecting praise. If I've had people who say, said, oh, I love your book. Oh, it's terrible. Didn't you notice? No. I hear you're the, you've got the salesperson the, only because the other person is sick this week. And even with children, when my daughter was at one of her school sports days, she was only five, and she came second in the whole school. And I said, baby, that's what she goes, but mommy, some of those children are four. I said, don't do that. Don't minimize what you came second in the whole school and you're five years old. That's amazing. You're really good at running and gymnastics and you must never minimize what you did. But I could see already her ability to diminish what she did well. It was just a fluke. It was just luck. There were a few kids younger than me, but there were a lot older than her. So to change your life, do not let in criticism, but do let in praise, especially your own, because your own praise means more. If I said something to you that was super praisey, I might have an agenda. I might want something from you. I might not. But when I praise myself, my mind knows there's no agenda. It must be true. It's going to sink in. Like if I have dry skin and I put balm on it, my mind doesn't go, is that from Prado? Did you get it free on an airplane? It still goes in and nourishes me. And words do the same thing, they go in, and if they're good, they will nourish you. So the cheerleader, invent your cheerleader, tell them what to say, have them whoop and cheer and do somersaults, or just say, you are amazing at this, and you're doing a great job. And if you keep listening to the cheerleader, you can't listen to the critic, because here's another rule of the mind. You can't be in two lanes at the same time. The mind can only focus on one thing. When you have conflicting beliefs, they cancel each other out. Keep your mind on what you want and off what you don't want. Keep your mind on how you want to be and off how you don't want to be. You cannot be in two lanes at the same time. Go in the cheerleader lane and leave the critical lane forever, and it will probably change your entire life. Mm. So beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you. So you know me pretty well. I do. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time together. We have. And um, I'll throw this out there and see what happens. Okay. So kind of summarizing, and this is like, I've actually never done this on the mm -hmm. show before, but I just think it's it's just, it's coming up as something mm -hmm. really interesting. From everything that we've talked about, if I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw this out there. So basically... When I come to something like MVU, like, you know, last mm. year, I basically went through the hardest time of I my do. life emotionally, sure. right? And you were actually there for, for some mm -hmm. of it. I, I was able to visit you during it and you got to see a totally different side of me. I did. And since then, it's been really interesting, right? Like I've been rebuilding sort of my own confidence mm -hmm. and my own self-esteem and, and all of these things that had been, I, I tore down, right? Through mm -hmm. these external circumstances. And then I've been rebuilding it. And it's been really interesting where I've now built this whole brand, this Wondersoul brand with the dojo work is like kind of the, mm -hmm. the core of it, which is one of my like biggest, it's like I didn't really create it. It's mm -hmm. more like I'm allowing it to come through mm -hmm. and, and teaching people this work, right? Mm -hmm. And that's been amazing and transformative. And I get all the incredible messages and testimonials and, and people's lives changing, right? And it takes very little time. And that's a physical practice. And then I come to something like MVU and I usually, I make lots of content, but I don't make vlogs. I don't make like video content like that when I'm at home. And I started making it again here. And of course, 
the amount of praise, the amount of feedback. And even I can like recognize my own ability to create this type of stuff. And I, I see it and I'm like, how do I even make that? Like I, it's, you know, it's not something that I practice. It's mm -hmm. just, there is an ability to generate this type of material that is beyond my own understanding, mm. right? It just happens. So I've got like this content creation talent. I've got the ability to see things on a macro perspective. So I've been asked mm. to have some ownership in this movie studio that's starting up with a many different business channels, right? And I'm able to really macro see the big picture and start to orient like huge teams mm. potentially around the right things and priorities. So it got these really interesting abilities, right? That I haven't necessarily cultivated or, or I have, right? And then the dojo and all the things centered around that. Mm. But I'm also at times extremely confident and at times extremely like I have no idea mm. like how I'm doing this or, you know, it's mm -hmm. like I can't really explain. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'm like, do I have any idea what I'm doing? But then it just works, right? Like mm. even when I'm making these videos, I'm like, yeah. do I have any idea what I'm doing? And then by the time it's done, it's it's great. Or the dojo, I get really nervous every time and there'll be a hundred people mm. and they all have these incredible experiences, but I'm so nervous during it. What would be your feedback knowing me well on how to continue like doing these things with more cheerleading, more confidence and less. Yeah, I think, you know, the belief that we know where we're going, I'm all the signs are marked. It's like being on a freeway and I know where I'm going. We don't know. You know, my, I think it was Michelangelo, but it could have been another painter who said, when someone asked him, how do you sculpt? He said, I look at a piece of marble. I see the angel inside and I set her free. But he didn't really know what he was doing. Most painters will tell you, I pick up a brush. You know, if you look at a child doing a drawing, they might start with a tree and then there's a house and then there might be a little path, but they don't know what they're doing. And as a writer, you know, when I got my first book deal, I remember them saying, jump half that book. And I had no idea how to find five more chapters. They said, I said, oh, sure, but I honestly didn't know. And then they said, we actually want seven more chapters. And they wanted it brought forward early. And I said, yes, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But I remember when I was driving my car, and all of a sudden one of the chapters came into my head. I thought, oh, that's great. And I stopped, and I was writing it out in the back of a checkbook. And then all of a sudden all the chapters came. And I think it's a mistake we have, which where I'm going is clearly marked. It's signposted because many people say, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, a lot of people will say, I started to write a movie. I wrote a song. If you listen to some of them say, oh, I was watching a documentary on the Stones, how someone did the music and they just put in the lyrics and it just all came together. But they wouldn't go, hey, I went into the studio and I had a whole album. They just have a little something, a song a word or something. And and this is an amazing, you should actually watch this called Being a Rolling Stone. They've interviewed four of them, but it's so interesting how it just comes together. So I think a creative person doesn't know. They, if you were building a house or designing somewhere, you often get ideas as you go along. And I think it's a mistake to think I know what I'm doing. You know, when I was in Croatia, I think it was three years ago, I turned up from L.A. and I was doing two talks. 
And then asked me to do three. And I was really tired. And they said, can you do four? And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I can't do a fourth. And I said, okay. I thought, you know, I'm not even going to plan this. I'm so, I'm just going to go out and just, I'm too tired to even think about it. And it was actually one of the best talks I ever did. And my husband said, that was the best ever because I didn't even plan it. I just walked out there. I didn't really care at that stage. I needed some sleep. And I'd offered to do one thing and suddenly I had to do four. I mean, I could have said no. But because I didn't plan it, it was the best thing ever. And I think sometimes we get too into the planning, creative people create. So you're doing both. You know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. But that's good because you're allowing your creative mind, the genius inside of you to take over. And if you asked anyone who'd achieved, I mean, we all know that Dyson spent a long time getting that vacuum cleaner right. Same thing with KFC, and apparently you had 80 tries at that menu. But when you fail at something, you always learn. And I think you just have to get past the belief, should I know what I'm doing? Half the time you don't know. Brilliant people don't know. And yet people will say, this, this music came from me. When I was in Thailand, I was asleep. And I, got, and I dreamt this whole nicer meditation, you impress upon yourself what you want, code it in, erase the old, repeat and rewire. And I dreamt all of that. And the man who invented a Singer sewing machine, I think this is a true story, he'd watch his wife sewing. And of course, when you sew, the needle is very fine, but the end, the eye is thick and the thread goes through and she would sew. And he really wanted to make a sewing machine that was with a pedal. So he began to try and think about how she could have a foot pedal, but he couldn't get the needle mechanism right. He, he couldn't get it. And apparently, if this is a true story, and I think it is, he was in bed and he was dreaming that he was tied to a totem and a red Indian was attacking him. And he suddenly realized that he was dreaming the entire arm mechanism and that the, the, the tiny bit of the needle is where the thread had to go, not the top, because it's going up and down, up and down. And and stitching, and he talked a lot about how he dreamt that whole mechanism. I dreamt my whole nicer meditation. Geniuses, I think it was Einstein who said he would sit in a rocking chair with a big, heavy shot put in his hand, and he would fall, and as he fell asleep, that it would drop to him, he'd wake up with all his best inventions inside of himself. And many people will say, you know, I go to sleep and ask my mind, well, I'm sleeping, give me the solution. Most people I know who are really smart say, you know, I, I lie on the grass and look at a tree and it comes to me. And I remember one of my clients who's such a talented head of a TV network and she had to say to them, look, I don't come to work at nine and sit at a desk. I can't work like that. My ideas come when I'm in the bath or walking my dog or swimming. And if you think I'm going to come here at nine and sit here at six and come up with TV shows, that's not how it is. They come to me when I'm sleeping, in the middle of a yoga class, but she's created some of the most incredible TV shows in the world. But she had the courage to say, I can't sit at a desk. It actually shuts me down. So I think what you should say is, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know it's going to be great. Mm. I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm going in the right direction. I don't really know how this is going to work out, but I do know it's going to be amazing. And actually, that's why I tell a lot of the kids I work with, darling, your life today is not good. You know, your dad doesn't see you being bullied at school. And this is your life. But it's not your life. It's just your life today. 
and your life next year could be so different with friends and amazing things. And if you can just start to say, this is my life today, but it's not my life. Because kids who are bullied and people who are depressed find it very hard. To, the mind is very poor at future pacing. It tends to stay in the now. But for you, that's a good thing. So I don't know what I'm doing, but I know it will be amazing. Because you have a creative genius inside of you. And geniuses very rarely know what they're doing. They don't have, they're like, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get a degree, I'm going to open a business, I'm going to create this product, I'm going to sell it for X and Y. You know, my daughter got married a couple of weeks ago at this amazing place where, and the guy who created it was an incredibly wealthy man. And when he'd made all that money, he didn't know what to do with it. So he created a place where they rewild. They're creating butterflies and bees and putting head. And people say, oh, you know, these people who pursue money. But I found some people and my clients have so much money, they don't even know what to do with it. And often they do something good. I could build a school in Kenya. I could have children's homes. I could do something in his case. I love the fact that he's rewilding a whole swathe of Suffolk and inviting back species that were dying out. And he couldn't do that if he wasn't super wealthy. But my message there is that when he started out to make a lot of money, he didn't have that plan in his head. He just wanted to make a lot of money. He had a business, he made loads of money, sold it, made more. But then all of a sudden, his mind said, let's do something good. And I don't think for one minute that was where he started, but it's definitely where he ended up. Mm. And I, I think when you don't know where you're going, I mean, I was going to be a school teacher. And then I had a plan, but there was another plan. And I went everywhere and came back to doing what I was probably meant to do, which is teaching. But I didn't plan. I didn't have a plan. So sometimes it's good to, even if you have a plan, allow it to go in a different direction. And I would say not knowing where you're going can sometimes be amazing because it allows you to have flexibility about where you do end up going. But when you know where you're going, I'm going to be a lawyer. I see so many clients in their 40s who say, you know, I wanted to be a tennis coach, but I became a lawyer. I wanted to be an actor, but I became an accountant. I went into the family firm, and now I've got depression. And a lot of depression, I find, is because of failing to follow your heart's desire. But if you don't know what you're doing, but you know you love it, you'll follow your heart's desire. It'll probably be amazing, and you definitely won't have depression. Mm, beautiful. So I've got one more question that I, I've, I'm so excited because I've never heard you talk about this, but you've said multiple things that have kind of gone around it. When you were seven mm -hmm. and you said like, what do you, what did you love doing between the ages of like five and 14 mm -hmm. or seven and 14? Seven and 14-ish. Yeah. And you were always so interested in human behavior mm. and you're like following the heart's desire mm. and, and really uncovering why that yeah. is. What is your mental model or belief about reality that because it sounds like what you're saying is we're kind of all put here mm -hmm. with like a very particular gift or genius right mm -hmm. how do you look at that in the world like what's your belief structure around that if anything maybe maybe it's just what you said or maybe there's something deeper I think there wonderful things are happening i met someone an amazing woman and she puts computers across nigeria they're actually i don't know how it works but they're actually nailed into something they're in set in a concrete block and all these kids can turn up 
and they can go on the computer and they're educating themselves. And she's putting them everywhere. I know someone else in India that's putting something similar where that you can go to a computer and you can communicate with a doctor and they can do tests on you. I think you put your hands on it, read your test, something like that. But I think what we're seeing here is the days of you go to school, you get an education, and depending on how good the education is, that will decide whether you can make it or not. We now have kids who are teaching themselves everything on YouTube, or teaching themselves dance moves, creating products, inventing stuff. And I think the days of go to school, do well, then you'll get a good job, and then you're set for life are ending. And I'm glad because we're seeing so many people come out of nowhere with an incredible mind that can create something and do something. And I think that's a great thing. I think life is so different now. Yeah, I think the world of classical education and the world of the internet education, what you, I mean, nowadays you can learn anything on you. There are girls doing makeup tutorials, making a fortune. Who would have thought of that? There's a girl who called Anastasia who, who did an eyebrow thing, became a billionaire. Who would have thought that creating shapewear, which has been around since the 1950s, but Spanx and indeed Skims are cleaning up that market. Who would have thought Revlon would go bankrupt because they didn't understand that now people buy makeup online. They go to influencers. And who would have thought you could be an influencer with no education but an, a thought, an idea that I can monetize eyebrows or applying lipstick. I mean, that was unheard of. I can sell water. I can sell jingles. I can teach something. Who would have thought that you could make money teaching how to clean a house? You know, we have Mrs. Hinch and a few other people. And they go on and they do about how to clean your house, which we already know how to do. And they have become multimillionaires, even billionaires. You know, I, I, I'm great friends with Pat McGrath. I love her. And she's become the first makeup artist billionaire. And she certainly didn't come from privilege, but she always had a vision about makeup. And she'd done something extraordinary. And so that that's a great lesson. Think about what you know in here. What could you do or create or think or imagine? Because your imagination has no limits. In a battle between logic and imagination, imagination always wins. And there are so many people out there. I mean, look at Ed Sheeran. You know, he had red hair and glasses, and yet here he is. Look at Eminem. I mean, rappers were black guys, and he's a white guy with blue eyes, but he said he was so angry, and he became a rap star. And there's so many people out there who you'd think, wow, who'd have thought Danny DeVito would be an actor? Or even Whoopi Goldberg would get an Oscar, but that's right. You know, I love the fact that people are coming into acting, coming into modeling. And I'm trying to think of the girl I love who does the gap models, and she's got impetigo all over her skin. It's something brown. I think it's Chantal Brown. There's a girl in, in England with red hair who's got Down syndrome called Madeline. I love the fact that now we're beginning to love imperfections. We're starting to embrace them and say, I want a model that doesn't look perfect, that's got um, uh, pigmented skin or something different. I love the fact that we, we're getting different leading men. And I love the fact that kids that haven't gone into convention are the ones who are changing the world, creating stuff. And so 
I think the days of conventional education have gone. I know in Finland, for instance, you only go to lessons that you like. And my father used to do that all those years ago. You only ever went to lessons you liked because in there was your genius. No point in making someone do Latin when they hate it. And if you're good at IT, that's where you should be because you're not supposed to be a jack of all trades. You're supposed to be good at something, even one thing. And if you can find the one thing you love and become good at it, you don't need to do anything else. You know, there's many great, if I go to a great restaurant, they don't have a chef. They have a pastry chef and a meat chef and a sous chef. If I go to a great school, they have an English teacher, a geography teacher, a Spanish teacher. And they don't have one teacher. If I go to a hospital, there isn't one doctor. There's a cardiologist and a rheumatologist and a dermatologist. And each one is just a specialist in that one area. So find one thing, be really good at it, and don't worry about where you're going. Because what you want wants you, and what you're moving towards is always moving towards you. You just don't know it. Yeah. So when people fall in love with you after watching this and listening to this, where do you recommend they go to digitally stalk you and consume everything? Well, what a lovely thought that is. If you go to marissapeer.com, we have a lot of free products. We don't require your credit card or anything like that. We have some great products on love blocks, wealth blocks, health blocks, success blocks. Just take these free audios and they start to unblock you so you can attract love or wealth or success or health or happiness. And by all means, give them to anyone else that you know would like them to. So marissapeer.com is for products and find what I'm doing. If you want to train in our TT, it is, I think, the best job in the world. I'm so lucky because I do what I love. And I love what I do. Go to rtt.com to either train in it or find someone who has trained in it who will help you immensely. And if you want to join the I'm Enough and get some of these great bracelets that say I'm Enough, go to imenough.com. And my book, Tell Yourself a Better Lie, is a great book about learning to use some RTT principles on yourself. And then all my trainings and teachings are all over YouTube. And again, they're all completely free. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you too. My heart can't